Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about the interesting connections between Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament history. We'll also talk about what it means to live without walls and whether the prophet Zechariah, who said the New Jerusalem would have no walls, actually got it wrong, since Revelation 21 definitely mentions those walls. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to The Commentary at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can always find us online at graceforsufalls.org. Old Testament prophecy is full of heightened images. They're surreal, they're over the top. But the more you look, the more parallels you find to other parts of the Bible. Often the symbols in one prophecy are repeated in different forms throughout Scripture. Or things that happen in one era will provide a kind of vocabulary for prophetic images that come later on. At Grace, we've been studying the book of Zechariah, and as we've done this, we've had to look at similar prophecies in other parts of Scripture. We've looked at Jeremiah, for example, we've looked at Ezekiel, and we've looked quite a bit at the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. But Cameron has been thinking about something a little bit different, not the way that one prophecy connects to another but the way that the night visions of Zechariah are reminiscent of historical events, things that happened in the history and life of Israel. Specifically, Zechariah's third vision, the vision of the man with the measuring line, reminded Cameron of the history of the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. This is the, the part of Exodus where the people of Israel have finally left and they finally left Egypt. They're, they're freed from slavery and they come up to this wall, the red, the red sea. And so as I was listening to Zechariah in the sermon, I just kind of noticed some parallels. The first one is the walls of fire. I'll just read from Zechariah. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. So a wall of fire is a pretty stark image. And of course, if you think back to this Exodus story, the Lord appears to protect Israel as they're leaving Egypt as this pillar of cloud by the day and pillar of fire by the night. And so if you go back to Exodus 14, after the service, I was looking back through it again. And sure enough, it actually it mentions the angel of the Lord going behind the people to protect them from the Egyptians that were pursuing them. If you look at the Hebrew here, so, so there's a difference in language between the angel of God, which would be the, the angel of Elohim, and the angel of the Lord, which would be the angel of Yahweh. And although there's a difference linguistically, 
scholars typically lump those two together. So when you see the angel of God, you can think the angel of Yahweh, and, and you're, you're in the right ballpark. So we have several appearances of the angel of Yahweh in Zechariah. And as you say, he turns up in Exodus as well. And probably most famously, if you flip back in Exodus to Exodus 3, in the story of the burning bush, where the angel of Yahweh is present, and then the angel of Yahweh kind of speaks as Yahweh and reveals his covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses famously. So scholars argue over how to interpret these passages. If you go to Calvin's commentary on Exodus, you'll see that that he has no difficulty saying, well, the angel of Yahweh who speaks as Yahweh is clearly a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. So making that uh, equation for him, as for many Christian scholars, is is pretty clear. And and the term for that is Christophany. So we call appearances of God theophanies, and specifically appearances of Christ prior to his incarnation, Christophanies. In our series on Zechariah, we've been treating the angel of Yahweh as a Christophany, as, as the angel of the messianic presence, to use Meredith Klein's term. And so, yes, you absolutely do see those parallels. Not only do we have the angel of God in the Red Sea account, but as you mentioned, there's a wall of water that is parted. There's a pillar of fire, and God in, in Zechariah's prophecy promises to be a wall of fire around the city. And it illustrates for us how these prophetic images and historical images recur. And, and in this case, I think this suggests the connection between the history and the prophecy. Let's look at the, the other parallel that I, I noticed between the two passages. So the last verse in Zechariah 2 that we looked at on Sunday was, was this, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And again, the word silence this time was what what struck out to me. And sure enough, in that same passage back in Exodus, there's a a really interesting mention of silence, which I have have found kind of compelling and theologically rich. So I'm going to go back to Exodus 14. This is starting in verse 13. So the people of Israel are backed up against a wall, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And the Egyptians are coming at them. They're, they're complaining, what, why did you bring us out here to die, to be slaughtered? Um, they're terrified. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses tells him, God is going to take care of you. He's going to fight for you. You have only to be silent and watch God work. And sure enough, you know, Zechariah is saying something similar there. In your sermon, Mark, you said, this call to silence is really a call to, to worship. You know, it's to see God and to be in awe of him. And I, I just feel like similar things are going on in these two chapters. Do you see that? 
I think that's a great observation because we all too often feel like in order to be, you know, good Christians or or good people that we need to do something. And certainly when it comes to salvation, it's often the case that the the big question we ask is, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? You know, what work do I have to perform? Ironically, even when people understand salvation is by grace alone, it's like, I understand it's by grace alone, now what do I need to do? And here, in the story of the Exodus, you have the prototype for understanding salvation, right? As the people are delivered out of Egyptian bondage, that becomes a picture forever after of God delivering his people from the bondage of sin. And what do they have to do? Well, you know, Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. So God is the worker. God is the one who's going to do salvation, and we are the beholders of that salvation. So that call to silence isn't just yelling at you to shut up. It's, it's like watch in awe of what God is doing. It's a powerful lesson for us because we are so quick to turn these doctrines of grace into a kind of program for living or for, for personal transformation. And, and the idea of worship becomes almost just a means of equipping us to do the thing that we're called to do, not realizing the most important thing that we've been called to do is to worship the God who made us. Yeah, I find it interesting, too, that Moses says, fear not. I think there must be some connection between seeing the work of God, God working for you and placing your your faith in that. And just the fact that so we, we were talking earlier about Christ, this Christ figure, this angel of the Lord being present in that scene, too, is really rich because the Egyptians are coming and he's the one that stands between them, and he, you know, he blocks them off in a sense, and, and then God works to save his people. Right. In, in both cases, he's the protector. And I, I love this Exodus 14 account just because I love these people. Even in their doubt and their worry, they've, they've got a sense of humor. You know, they come to Moses and they say, were there not enough graves in Egypt? We had to come out into the wilderness to be buried. You know, it's, it's clear that they are fearful and that they see themselves being overwhelmed and that they really don't believe that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And I find that utterly relatable. I feel exactly the way that they do so often. And so what's beautiful about... The vision in Zechariah is that it's not just ancient history. Zechariah is prophesying a protection that is to come, projecting this out into our lives and into the world to come. And so that it's a powerful word of assurance and comfort.
One of the ironies of preaching Zechariah 2 and the idea that the New Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls is that I actually have a lecture that I do at Worldview Academy and a chapter in my book, Rethinking Worldview, called A City Without Walls. And the whole point of that chapter is that you don't want to be a city without walls because the Bible compares uh, having no walls to having no defense, you know, to being undiscerning or lacking self-control. And yet, in Zechariah's prophecy, that is turned upside down. And suddenly, it's good for the New Jerusalem to be a city without walls. And God promises to be the walls so that there is no need for that. But it raises an interesting question, which is, what would it look like for us to live as if we were a city without walls in the good sense? Like, how would our lives change if we didn't feel the need to wall ourselves in, if we weren't so defensive, in other words? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I immediately go to the New Testament and the way it talks about the gift of the Spirit. The reason I think I go there is because Zechariah talks about the Lord being the glory in her midst. So in the New Testament, both on an individual level and as a corporate, on the, on the corporate level as the church, the, the spirit of God is the glory of God in our midst. And so, I, yeah, I start to think, what, what might it mean to live to live as if that were true, you know, to, to truly embrace the reality that the spirit of God is, is God within me. Surely it means that God has given us a, a spirit, not of, of fear. So just like the Israelites, uh, maybe we're fearful at the time, um, but we're called not to be afraid because of the works of the Lord. So God has given us a spirit of, of self-control um, and a, a spirit of hope. That's a starting place. I like that. I think that idea of fearlessness is it, like if we were going to boil it down and so there's one thing to take away, I think living fearlessly is good, but you have to think about what that means because there are a lot of people right now who believe they are living fearlessly. And what they mean by fearless is I don't care about the consequences. Like I'm going to do what I want and I'm not going to worry about you know, the consequences of my actions. And obviously that's not the fearlessness that we're talking about. And, and a lot of people who act in ways they think of as fearless do so out of anxiety, right? We're seeing a lot of, of anger and defensiveness on the part of people who think this is what fearlessness looks like. But the thing about it is fearless living isn't driven by fear, right? It's driven by an absence of fear, or to put it positively, it's driven by hope. It's driven by joy. And what that means is we don't act on the anxieties that gnaw away at us, right? And I think we all have these, whether it's, you know, our personal lives, what's going to happen in our work, what's going to happen with our relationships, the instability of of our lives and that anxiety then translates into a kind of defensiveness towards the world around us. And we see this in the church as well. A lot of Christians concerned about the future of Christianity 
convince themselves that it's okay to promote Christianity through unchristian means. But that, again, is not being fearless, it's acting out of fear. And so if we are trusting in God as a wall of protection around us, that means we don't act as people who are ready to pop off at any moment and, and to, to fight for, for everything that is ours, because we should be acting as people who believe nothing that is ours can be taken from us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, you mentioned the word hope. Uh, I believe the, you know, the, the benediction from, from Sunday mentioned this, this very thing and tied it to the, to the Holy Spirit even. So this is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So I totally agree. The opposite of, of fearful living, of a life of defense and anxiety is a life of joy and peace, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, Pastor Mark, on Sunday, we were talking about Zechariah. Again, you're preaching through chapter 2. And part of Zechariah's vision there is that the new Jerusalem will be without walls. Uh, So we talked about this earlier. It will be without walls because the Lord will be its defense. The Lord will be the city's uh, glory. And... As soon as I heard that, I thought ahead to the book of Revelation in chapter 21, where we see this vision, John giving us this vision of the new Jerusalem actually coming down. And lo and behold, John describes it as having walls. So what gives? What's going on here? Right. So obviously, one, one thing we could do is, is pit John and Zechariah against one another you know, and, and say, which one of them got it wrong? Uh, because clearly... A huge point is made in Zechariah of the fact that the new Jerusalem will not be walled, that God instead will be a wall of fire around it. And from that flows a sense of God's protection over the city. Then if you flip to Revelation 21, you will see immediately before the the mention of that golden measuring rod that I alluded to in the sermon, you get John seeing the city come down out of heaven. And one of the first things, if not the first thing he observes, is that there is a high wall. Now, that's not the only apparent uh, difficulty, right? So we looked at the uh, account in Ezekiel, starting in Ezekiel 40 and going through 48. And Ezekiel takes painstaking measurements of everything related to the city and the temple and that sort of thing. And if you look at Ezekiel's vision, his prophetic vision, Zechariah's prophetic vision, John's prophetic vision, you will be able to find instances that don't seem to match up, even as we glimpsed very briefly at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is making reference to distances and gates and things like that. Well, gates are in walls. So if you get rid of all the walls, do you get rid of the gates? How does that work? That kind of thing. So 
I'll say this. So Zechariah does say the city will have walls. He just says they won't be the kind of walls that you're thinking of, that God himself will be the wall around the city. And the point of that is not only that God will protect the city, but that the 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 line that encompasses the city is a line of holiness. Like what God will do is is create a zone of of holiness or righteousness and and protect that righteousness. And that you do see in the New Jerusalem in Revelation as well, expressed a little bit differently. So there are a lot of ways that scholars will will address questions like this. Some would probably want to talk more about progressive revelation, that maybe our picture of New Jerusalem is sort of built up over time, which is definitely true. But personally, I'd like to go back to something that is embedded in the subtitle of this sermon series, that all of these prophecies are giving us a glimpse of God's kingdom through a glass darkly. There's something about the nature of a a vision in the night, of a a dream, where there is a a symbolic value to things, and it it isn't one-to-one. We talked about this early on. Don't think of prophecy as as like a substitution code, and if we just figure out A equals B, then we can crack the code. These images oftentimes don't work that way, and so I think what Zechariah's vision is conveying about the city is something true. What John sees when he sees the city coming down is equally true and accurate. And that when we behold the finished product face to face, we will look back and see the truth of all of these glimpses, but also see where they are incomplete where where the reality is so much greater than the foreshadowing that was received symbolically. So it's it's uh you might think of of these as visions, you know, covered in gauze where we don't see how all the connections are to be made. That's helpful. Clearly each of them is trying to make some more than literal point. You know, they're making theological or symbolic points in the way that they're describing this. Do you think that it's fair, I was just wondering, would it be fair for us to conclude that they're not even describing a physical city at all? Can we go that far and say they're just not talking about that? Um, we don't know if there will be physical walls or not. It, are Is that fair? Or is that going too far? I don't think it's going too far, but I, I, I mean, obviously you would want to hold it lightly in the sense that uh, I don't want you, Cameron face-to-face with Jesus to find yourself in a physical city and to, to really regret this podcast as a result. So, so yeah, let's acknowledge that, that we're prepared to be surprised by, by what we see in reality when all is fulfilled. Uh, I do think that the physical signs are intentionally physical and not, let's say, merely spiritual, that the the relationship between physical and spiritual things that we see in in signs and scripture is such that we shouldn't discount the physical as unimportant. So I think it's very important that we're talking about Jerusalem, that the features of the, the geography of the actual city of Jerusalem figure so heavily here. All of that really matters. At the same time, we are talking about a temple, not, you know, an altar not made 
with human hands. We are talking about a new Jerusalem, which the angel makes very clear in Revelation 21 is the church. So this symbolism is symbolism, right? It is depicting a, a, a different reality so that if you read it with a wooden literalism, you're not reading it faithfully. You're not reading it the way that, that the text itself interprets the parts of prophecy that, that it interprets. So I wouldn't go so far as to say none of the physical stuff matters, but I do think the physical is used to convey spiritual realities that are accommodated to the symbolism. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at graceforsufalls.org.